You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring season and beyond. Tonight, we are delighted to have with us once again, Marie Mitsuki Mockett. Any new writing from Marie is an occasion for celebration here at City Lights, and we are indeed happy to be celebrating a new book entitled American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming into the Heartland which is this really kind of incredible journey, not only into our own family's history, but a, a kind of a deep dive into the American heartland with all of its contradictions, its complexities, and all the while kind of telling us a story with a, a strong lyrical component and a really engaging kind of humanism at its core. American Harvest is published by our friends at Grey Wolf Press, one of our country's great independent presses, producing excellent prose, poetry, and nonfiction each year little bit of background about uh, Marie. Uh, she is the author of the novel Picking Bones from Ash and a memoir where the dead pause and the Japanese say goodbye, which was the finalist for the uh, Penn Open Book Award. She's written for the New York Times, for Salon, National Geographic, Glamour, Plowshares, and uh, other publications. She's also been a guest on The World, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered on NPR, she is a core faculty member of the Rainier Writing Workshop and a visiting writer in the MFA program at St. Mary's College in Raga. She makes her home in San Francisco. Joining her tonight in conversation is Garnet Cadigan. Born and raised in Jamaica, Garnet Cadigan is an essayist and journalist who writes on history, culture, and the arts, amongst other subjects. His work explores the dynamics of cultural change and particularly in urban settings. Uh, he's a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia and a Porter Distinguished Visiting Professor and a Visiting Scholar at the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. He was also a Martin Luther King Jr. Visiting Scholar at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Many of you may recognize him as the editor-at-large for Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas, which was edited by Rebecca Solnit and uh, Joshua Jolly Sapiro. So it's such a pleasure to have you both with us again. Marie Garnett, welcome to City Lights Live. Yay, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that introduction. Thank you for, thank you for having us. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Hi, Garnett. Hi, Marie. It's good to see you. That's the one beautiful thing about Zoom in the midst of all the things that are frustrating about this time is that we can just be together and see each other so closely, you know. I think other than my close. students, you, you might be the person I've seen, I've seen it the most during the pandemic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's, it's actually fitting that we're together because you were there at the inception of this book. Yes, um, a book which many people have described as a farming book or a book about God or a book about country. Mind you, you like taking on the small topics. Not not easy, not easily categorized ones, I guess. Sorry, I interrupt, I interrupted you. No, no, that's okay. That's the nature of the conversation that you know we can, you know, keep interrupting, you know, with the better thoughts. But the thought that I had, and I'd love to hear your reflections on it, 
is that this is really a book about love. You know, maybe I'm cheating by, you know, paying close attention to your epigraph. But in epigraph, you have the wonderful poet, Nikki Giovanni, who, by the way, shares birthday with me, and Prince. And Giovanni says, we love because it's the only true adventure. So tell us about that adventure, that adventure of love, which is American Harvest. And perhaps, you know, you know reflect, you know, you know, add it to argue with me or reinforce my thoughts that this is a book most fundamentally about love, much more so than about farming, than about country. It's, it's a book about well, love. So now, do you, do you think that I wrote this book thinking I'm going to write a book about, about love? I was cheating because, you know, I got the chance to eavesdrop over your shoulder as you were working on this book. You don't see me talking about love or the importance of love very much. Maybe I would have a larger Instagram account if I constantly put up memes about love. I should probably, I should probably do that. I consider this book to be an, an investigation of something that I didn't understand and that I thought was important. And so I, I asked some questions and wanted to try to answer those questions by talking to people who were you know, very different than I am, who, and, and to sort of sit with them and find out what their genuine experience in the world is, and then see if I could answer some of the questions that I have. I did not daily tell myself, this is a book about love or you must employ love. I also though, didn't spend a lot of time saying to myself, this is a book that's going to require you to be brave, or I just really was trying to focus on the questions that I had and on my curiosity and was trying to pinpoint, you know, when I'm, when I'm in a church, when I'm in a farm, when I'm around a situation that I don't understand, what's actually happening. Uh, and that was really what I was trying to, to do and how I was trying to direct my attention. Now, it is the case, for anyone who's read the book, that that I was in circumstances that were stressful to me and I did get on the phone and call you and you would listen and then you would say you need to you know love the people who you're with and and go back and look at these situations that may be challenging or complicated and try to access them you know from a place of love and I would think oh okay I'll, that must be what I'm doing I'll try to go back and do that but it wasn't really something that I was consciously thinking about all the time. And it feels wrong for me to say, to the extent that the book succeeds, it's because I was able to access love. I, that feels like too much, um, too, too, you know, that feels like a very egotistical thing to say. If I was able to accomplish that, I mean, that's, that's great. But it's, it's not something that I think about on a daily basis. But love comes up a lot in the book. Uh, yes, it does. I mean, as early as you're saying, oh, I'd you know, we travel this and travel this. Oh, I travel definitely for love. And you make your way uh, you got in Nebraska. Me. Matter of fact, even before, the, you know, on the last things the book is ending, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody who, you know, you know you're talking and he says, well, you know, God loves people and they're in the city where you're trying to come to terms between, you know, our attachments to the urban and our attachments to the rural, the different worlds, you know, that are there and what it means for people to understand each other. And, for you, a lot of it has to do with listening, that in many ways, this is a book that was an act of listening and listening, as you showed time and again, is fundamentally an act of love. You know, of asking what does it mean to temporarily, you know, put aside, you know, our focus on ourselves and begin to ask, what does it mean to focus on other people? What does it mean to give ourselves over to their imaginations, their experiences, 
their ideas, their beliefs, their thoughts, their ways of being. And you went all over that. You just said that you're going to go and follow uh, wheat farmers and, you know, move along in a, their own, you know, regiments and cycles and rituals. And not only the rituals of labor, but rituals of worship, you know, rituals of companionship, rituals of community. What in that act of continually listening, you know, did you begin to learn about your own understanding of the city and also your own understanding as a city person, you know, of places outside of the city? But what also did you begin to understand about, you know, what is the real task of listening? Because in, in the book, time and again, you, you may you know, insistently, but generously, you know, you know, you know reminders that, you know, so many places in which there's this huge gap or this huge chasm in understanding or a failure in to understand each other, that there's no simple magic pill that would right. demand right. the real hard work of patient, sustained listening, which is one of the great beauties and joys of this book. Well, and that is where the, where love comes in, right? Because that, that maybe that is the only reason why you would spend time listening to people or talking to people or what would be the motivation for trying to be open to others? Why should you be open to others? You know, we don't have to be. So why should one be? And you're right, things do get reduced down to this question of love, really. I think I knew that I had always heard that Christianity was the religion of love and that love was one of the things that was unique about, about Christ's message. And I didn't grow up, I didn't really grow up with any one religion. And I also, my mother was from Japan. And so I also grew up always hearing how for a long time, the word love didn't really exist in Japanese and how there really is no way to say, I love you. It's something that people still debate uh, and linguists still debate whether or not you can say, I love you in Japanese. And there are ways in which people say it but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the same history and it doesn't have the same loaded meaning that it does in, in Western English. And so I was aware from a really early age because I heard you know, my parents and other, other people talk about this, that this question of love was, was very much a, a part of Western culture and that it originated from Christianity. And I really wondered what, what does that mean? And if it means anything, um, is there anything to it? And if there is, what is it? Right, because there's, and there's a scene in the book where I talk about my feeling of disappointment that no one had ever purchased me anything from Tiffany, the jewelry store, because if you live in New York City, you're constantly surrounded by Tiffany ads, you know, and there's always like, when you get engaged, you can get a Tiffany box. And then on your birthday, you can get a Tiffany box. And then in the advertisements, the, the graying husband gives the wife another Tiffany box to uh, appreciate her for all the years that she's been a wife and on and on. I remember thinking like, but I know that that has nothing to do with love. I know that, that that's like some advertiser who's taken this notion of love and then turned it into some sort of message with a bunch of images and it's supposed to make me feel like I want my Tiffany ring, which I've never gotten. And that's not love. But is there anything there? And that was definitely something that I wanted to in, in, investigate. And, you know, why should we be kind to each other? Why should we listen to each other? I've been asked this in other 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 contexts too, where people have said, you know, why should why should people be kind to each other? Why should there be an attempt at reconciliation? Why should we uh, address um, racial inequality? Why should we why should we address any of these questions at all? 
you know, because you have to, because someone told you to, because it's the right thing to do. And um, I think sometimes it does just come down to this question of loving, of loving humanity and of that being kind of the great human quest and the great human challenge, whether, whether we're aware of it or not. But I speak of it as if it seems like I'm in a one-trick pony. But it's not a one-trick pony that one of the things that you do marvelously is show love in many, in its, in its multi-splendid quality the way you can actually learn to love someone. It's not that love is this impulsive, it can just jump in. Like we see you learning to love people who are different from you. You see people learning to love you who they were skeptical of, you know, of your motives and, and why you were interested in their lives. But there's also something which is, you know, wonderfully palpable about this book and it's love of land. What does it mean to love a place? Um, what does it mean to love the city or to love the land that they're attached to? Can you open, you know, read this, in a, in a section, you know, that land of primary colors. Do you have the book close at hand? I do, actually. So I'd like you to read what we begin in a book of one called and then end on page six. <laughs> but it, I just want people to actually have a sense, you know, you know of what we're talking about. It, it, you know, love sometimes as a way of feeling like this, you know, it runs the risk of just being like, you know, we're having a sentimental um, in a moment here. I think it's difficult thing. because there's so much bad news. Yeah. And it's really difficult to go from an environment where there's a lot of conflict and a lot of tension. It's really hard for me to just say, well, you're just supposed to love people. You know, I mean, how, how we go from the news where people are dying and being shot to, well, you just have to love people. Is it, that's like a huge road to travel. And I guess that's why I hesitate to address it, that question just by saying, you know, love is the answer, even though I'm, coming to you from California where, you know, we say love is the answer all the time, but is it, but, but it's, I think that's probably true, but, but it's a huge distance to travel yeah. and it feels very facile just to say that. Right. Well, I think part of the beauty of the book, which I'm going to actually help you to convince us <laughs> is it shows, you know, what that journey looks like and just the multitudinousness of that journey, you know, that, that love is, you know, in a rich, in a, in, a, in a meaningful thing that you can wrap your arms around and then see. And so in a first, in a, in a, in a, one of the ways you do it is by showing that no place, no people, in a, no family no, in a, has any one story. That mm -hmm. this book is very insistent on undercutting the idea that in a single story in a, in a, in a can explain anything. Yeah, uh, no, that's true. So I wanted to start us, you know, with the land. So you begin first, you know, you know one of the things that you're trying to do is dispute this idea of flyover country. And you do that by showing us the land in all its varied beauty and complexity. So take us there first, Lucia. Okay, all right, I'll read a little bit, okay. This is the land of primary colors. Red combine, blue sky, yellow wheat. Under the earth, pancaked layers of sediment conceal elusive minerals coveted by men, and the strewn jigsaw bones of monsters awaiting reassembly. Untouched, the surface is a prairie, a tough lattice of grasses and shrubs that frame the darting meadowlarks and snakes who work together with the ants to survive dry days. There is little moisture, though winters can bring three feet of snow. Rain will bring only half that. The Ogallala Sioux, the Comanche, the Kiowa, and other Native Americans who once lived on this land by themselves, hunted for buffalo and foraged for berries, nuts, and wild potatoes. But Europeans supplanted those potatoes for wheat. The buffalo have dwindled. 
The Indians who live here no longer predominate. Now the land is dotted with windmills and farms, though the coyotes still sing in the evening and you can train your eyes to spot the thin caramel-colored frames of the antelope camouflaged by kicked-up dust smearing the spaces between the clusters of hardy yucca. The primary colors give way to gradations of scarlet, pink, and lemon in the early morning when the sun peers over the horizon. At sunset, the sky often employs a darker palette, particularly if the light is bruised by a storm or smoke from a wildfire. You can sit on top of a cylindrical, 15-foot-high steel grain bin and watch the sun go from one end of the horizon to the other. Your view might be impeded by clouds or weather, by which is meant rain and that old enemy hail. You can do this and feel just how tiny a passenger you are on the sphere that is your home as you whirl around and around the sun. You can feel the vastness of the sky the inch by inch eternity of a day. You might see a storm, or rather you would feel it first, sitting there on the grain bin, there is a cool exhalation on your face. And though the temperature fluctuates during the day, this cold breath is an intruder. It lets you know that something else has entered the prairie. Sometimes the storms stay far away and you can watch them as a man observes a game of football. They are out there, crawling on wispy gray legs across the prairie. Sometimes the sky slices and sputters with lightning, and you can watch that from a safe distance too, though you shouldn't forget to look behind you. Things come up from behind sometimes. The rain might come toward you at a great velocity, generally growing first in the west. Clouds gather and heave, vapor massing, if you see this great gray inky thing racing toward you, and if you are near shelter, scurry off the grain bin and into someplace dry, even if you are just getting into your pickup truck, because you will want to be inside before the hail or the lightning commits its annihilation of the crop. When it isn't raining, you feel a quiet and persistent sentience. All around you, things are growing. Wheat seeds sprout and climb toward the sun a fraction of an inch a day. This is a thing to consider. As you sit on the grain bin that is your perch, for miles and miles around you, plants are reaching. Sunflowers turn their shaggy manes toward the sun, and in the summer, their black kernels swell and grow fat. Things aspire, reach, ripen. You might even hear the crack of the hard seed shell when the first thirsty tongue of the plant slides out looking for wet dirt. Maybe, you hear the mass exhalation of thousands of kernels of wheat as they fatten into the little balloons that will become seeds. This world is alive and busy. It requires that you pay attention. That's beautiful. So I want to linger with those last two sentences you read. So this world is alive and busy. It requires that you pay attention. Mm. And so much about this book was about paying attention, paying attention to that busy world paying attention also to the quiet world, paying attention to also recognize that the world that we think is quiet, so-called flyover country, so-called planes, are actually much more alive, much more busy, much more vibrant, much more buzzing with activity than you know, you know, we notice. Or actually, you know, we haven't even taken the time to notice. So I'd love to hear you talk to all of us about this book, working on this book and what it meant 
and paying attention. Not only that, you were spending time with people who made it their business to pay attention. So talk to us about American Harvest and attention. And well, so I think there are a couple of things I would say. There was a point at which I realized that in my in my life experience and in the in the people who I know, you know, there was a point where those of us who are descended from, you know, what we would call settlers, more some of us come from farming families, and there are a number of people who come from farming families who don't have that the memory of farming anymore because you know, what's happened in the last 100 years, people have left farms and they've moved to cities. So we can return to the, the subject of, of the city, um, which you asked about earlier. But I, I don't have that because my family kept its land and continued to farm. And so I have, even though I am myself not a farmer, I do have a history of going and traveling to right the interior of the country for wheat farm, even though I also have parents who were in an interracial marriage and who were artists and who lived in California. And so more of us have this history than we realize, I think, not all of us, but, but, but a number of, of Americans do. And the second piece is, I think that whether I realized it or not, although I do now, we live in an interdependent relationship. And you asked me earlier about cities and a lot of my sense of self comes from a city and living in a city. My friends are in cities, I love cities. I remember I was just telling somebody the other day, I remember when I first went to New York City and I felt like I had found my home. This is where I was going to be comfortable, most comfortable. Having said that, cities don't provide everything that everybody needs. The food comes from out of the city. You know, there's some food that's grown in cities, but most of it is not grown in the city. And the, most of the people who farm the food, and process the food and transport the food and prepare it and bring it into the city are different than city residents. Uh, and there are many ways that you can look at what that difference is. And we could look at a series of maps. There's how people vote. There's whether they believe in God. There's where they shop, their beliefs about gun rights, et cetera. But we still have this interdependent relationship. And so I thought, well, you know, I am conscious of it because my dad was raising wheat and would talk to me about farming. But I have a lot of friends who I love dearly in, in, in New York who've never really been to a farm and are less conscious of it. And yet, you know, we all need to eat and the food has to come from someplace. And so every election, there's the meme that goes out, you know, the blue states will band together and we'll keep X, Y, and Z. And then the red states say, well, that's fine. You know, we'll keep X, Y, and Z. And, and I understand why that happens, but it's sort of unrealistic and unhelpful. So I had this very impractical project of wondering, well, what, what is it that we really disagree about? What is, what is really happening? What are all of the hard questions? If we really got into it, what would those hard questions and those conversations reveal? And I think that's part of what the journey of the, of the book is. And I've lost sight of what your question was. But I think the only way to come to any conclusion is to pay attention. And there's no quick solution to a conflict that is as entrenched as the conflicts that we, that we struggle with today in our culture. And I, and I have a hard time with that because I also don't like the answer that, you know, the, the world has to change and it'll take time because, of course, we're all aware that there's injustice and there's injustice now and we would like a just world now. And I don't want to be the person who says, well, it's going to take time. 
But I can also tell you, having written a book, that, that there's so much to, to untangle. The only way to really get at the sort of the heart of what, of the conflicts that, that are in our culture, it, it does take time and it is a, literally akin to a journey. Yeah. The book has a lot about farming. You learn a lot about farming in a way that's accessible to just a broad audience, not somebody who wants to know about the intricacies in of crop rotation, in a lot about you know, religious belief, um, in, a, in a belonging land you know that opening if you began not only did it give us a sense of just the beauty of the place but just also what it means to think about land in that part of the world and in and how much our sense of belonging there is bound up with land and of course in about country and the different in you know, a conflicts that in you know, a keep us at bay that have us view each other with suspicion or even disdain but it makes an argument over and over and over again for sustained attention, in a careful sustained attention. And it doesn't have these modest claims that if, oh, if you do this, then all will be well. In, in a, no it's not, it's not simple. Yes. I had a really interesting conversation today, actually, with a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine who's a conservation biologist and an ornithologist who grew up in California. And she said that there was a study done in the birding world comparing attitudes toward farmers and whether they would delay haying for the sake of birds that nest in grasses. And the study compared Nebraska to Vermont. And Vermont, we think of as a, as a liberal state with liberal politics, and yet 50% of, she said something like 50% of the farmers in Vermont would not delay haying for the birds. But nearly 100% of farmers in Nebraska were willing to delay haying for the sake of birds. And that there's this really vibrant bird watching culture in Nebraska. I, you know, I had never heard this before. Although when I think of the people I know in Nebraska, it completely makes sense that there is a great love of, of the land and of the wildlife and an attempt to preserve prairies. And, and that these attitudes align with, you know, wanting to delay hang for the sake of birds. But that isn't the story that we're fed a lot of the time. Can you go to page nine? I can. I let you answer you know, the question in part by you know, reading again. You know, we get the chance to listen to some of that lyricism in your own voice. It sounds a little bit different when you know, the Jamaican accent mediates, you know, mediates it. So I would actually have you do it. Um, I'm from the coasts. Mm -hmm. You want me to read that? And, and when you hit the word simple. Yes. Okay. I am from the coasts. 17 years in California, four years of college in New York City, more years of ping-ponging between the East and West Coasts, Cambridge, the South Bay, back to New York City and San Francisco. I have routinely flown over the rest of the country. When I look out of the windows of an airplane, I can see them down there, the flyover states, otherwise known as the heartland. Let's take seven. Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Idaho. When you fly over, if you do, do you see the checkerboard of monoculture fields, the eerie circular green shapes formed by robotic sprinklers and the small towns connected by twists of interstate? What do you think? I know what I'm supposed to think, small towns, white, ignorant, superstitious, but I don't think these things. Perhaps my resistance comes from the accident of my birth. My parents represent two countries previously at war, my father, America, and my mother, Japan. They overcame in one generation the enmity of their parents and governments to have me. I would like to believe 
reconciliation is this simple. But then you travel through the book and we travel along with you and discover that reconciliation is not that simple. It's really not. <laughs> Take us and let us spend some time with you and some of the, the barriers to not only reconciliation, but to even just simple conversation that you encountered and how by just looking at, not just, not just how by looking at in a farming, how by look in a, in a returning to Nebraska, which was partially a return to try to belong, you know, with family, but also to try to understand other people's understanding of belonging, you know, how that's in a shift to your understanding of inner reconciliation. I actually think the fact that the questions that I asked came up around food production were far more profound and, and really, you know, pretty smart, more than I realized. Because until you eliminate the stress of needing to use the land to create food, to, to feed the people who are generally gathered in cities, one is fundamentally dealing with a very, very intractable, intractable problem. It was a, a friend of mine, the poet Orlando White, who said to me, you know, Marie, all of this, and by this he meant all our problems, have to do with land. He said, everything comes back to the land. And uh, I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about the first time he said this to me, which would be maybe, you know, 15 years ago. And I didn't, I didn't understand it. It sounded like one of these things that might be profound, but might not be. But I filed it away. And in writing this book, I feel like I've started to understand what he means. And I was thinking the other day about timeshares. I miss New York. I've mentioned how much I miss New York. So I have spent some of my fantasy time on Zillow looking at what it would cost to buy an apartment in New York City. And every time I look at what it would cost, I decide that it doesn't make any sense to own an apartment in New York City for less money. I can do Airbnb, assuming that we get, we get back to Airbnb. And then I thought, well, what is the difference? Well, the difference is that I won't feel like I'm owning anything. And that feeling of owning something is incredibly powerful. Why do people buy timeshares in Hawaii, right? And then they're stuck going to Hawaii and they can't go anywhere else, but they've bought their timeshare in Hawaii and it feels different. And somehow life takes on a different complexion because of ownership. And I think one of the places in the book where this whole thing that I'm talking about now is highlighted is at the end, when we are in Idaho, living in trailers in an RV park that is adjacent to an Indian casino on the Shoshone Bannock Reservation, which was halved after World War II, when the US government said, can we borrow some of this land while we have this war and then we'll give the land back to you. And then they didn't. And then the farmland is owned by the tribes, but mostly farmed, meaning the, the person who plants the wheat, are Mormon settlers who can not own land, although if they arrived before a certain point, they could own farmland that's on the tribal grounds. And so that's an incredibly complex piece of US history right there. And it, everything is oriented toward the production of food. But there's a way in which land is contested, and I saw it in your book, you know, it was especially poignant. I mean, I lived in New York, as you know, you also lived in New York. I lived in New York for a decade and I've never been anywhere in the world in which people could sit down and spend all night at a party just talking about real estate. And it's like, I mean, I feel like everybody could like get a broker's license in six weeks because, you know, it's a city that's so, you know, obsessively focused on real estate, you know, but again, because it's, 
in a, you know, for so many people, so hard to live in, in that city and in which so much of your money goes to rent. And then, you know, of course, we talk about places, inequalities, slashes in, in, a, in, a, in the flesh of that city, just like in a San Francisco where you're at. And then so depending on where you are, it's still, you know, always an issue, but in some ways you can still talk a lot about real estate and never really talk about the land. But in American Harvest, you see, like, you can't not talk about the land and talk about just how contested and conflicted it is. Even as you're describing it in the opening, you know, we're talking about this land of primary colors in, and the many different, the visual story. It's so, you know, broad and varied. But then also the history, the way the ghosts, you know, storm the surface in, in ways you could actually be in a place like New York that is, you know, always so, you know, focused on the future. You could almost shake off the past or you know light years of you know the past or you know it's easy you know not to see it where in nebraska where you were right there in the plains you know the, the way in which that land is contested and the questions of belonging and its relationship to the land comes up so much more it's so much more you know poignant but it's also clear as you're talking in, in about you know looking at you know flyover country how flyover countries is viewed and you're talking about you being in new york city there's also a lot about how the city is viewed because this wonderful question and it's because of that relationship to land and you know and how land figures so prominently in people's sense of belonging and understanding of themselves in other words you know we could say real estate shapes you know a lot in in new york city and san francisco this is slightly reductionistic of me but the land in american harvest so shapes your sense of belonging that even the ambiguity with which the city is viewed in spite of the interdependence, there's this deep ambiguity to how the city is viewed, but a lot of that has to do with how people see the land. And so, you know, the relationship to the land, you know, there in the heartland, and is also a big part, not only of people who view themselves, but how they view people in the more contested regions or the places that are contested or unpalatable for them. Right. Well, so the my short answer is the beauty of the city is, and there's the quote that's in the book, which I, you know, I read because of you that uh, a city is a place where strangers meet and come together, as opposed to say, you know, a hamlet where you knew everybody and everybody knew your parents and everybody in the town has like a tally in their mind as to, you know, what your ancestors did and who married whom. A city is a place where one doesn't bring, supposedly doesn't bring that with them or brings that with them much less, but you meet strangers. I wrote a piece once for NPR and it was about, that all of the English novels where the book ends with the guy usually going back to his hometown and marrying his childhood or high school sweetheart. That is the solution to the problem in the book. We don't tend to have those stories in the United States. Going back to your hometown and marrying your childhood sweetheart is usually not seen as an answer to anything. The answer is going someplace new, meeting somebody new who rocks your world, takes you on an adventure, changes how you see. That's the answer to the problem, the existential problem. It's a big difference in literature and in worldview and why the city is so wonderful. It's why I love the city. It's a, pl it's a place where someone with my mixed heritage fits, but it's not a place where the land makes sense. Why is everybody talking about real estate in the city? What's actually happening? What is being produced as a result of all of this jockeying for a position and for owning, are, are we creating wealth? Who are we creating wealth for? So sometimes, not always, but when, and this is sort of a little bit reductionist, when 
people in the country look at people in the city and they say, well, what is all of that fuss for? At least I know if I own the land, I'm doing something with it. I'm making something with it that is important. Now you can, you know, you can argue whether or not all corn is consumed, which it isn't, how much corn is turned into ethanol, how much is exported, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still this basic feeling of food production is geared toward a necessary a human need. Whereas, I don't know, is it really worth it for me to do a down payment on an apartment in Manhattan and then have to pay the, the mortgage plus the maintenance, you know, with a doorman who will receive my package? Do I really have to live that way? I'm going to jump to questions, but you've begun to at least in part answer, you know, or illuminate, you know, the historian Richard Hofstadter's claim that America was born in the country and moved to the city and has viewed it with ambivalence ever since. In one of the passages brought up, you write about the attention that the world requires. When living in a space with the intent to write about it, how do you decide what deserves your attention? And from that, how do you decide what deserves your narrative attention? So it depends on what the story is. And I guess I'm, I'm like a little bit of a suspicious person because I often think that what they tell me the story is, is not what the story is. I tend to believe that there is a story that isn't being told that is the actual story. So when everybody's sitting around in Manhattan talking about how difficult it is to find a place to live and what the rent is, I wonder, well, what's actually happening? And I pay attention to the things that tell me what is actually happening. When we're fighting over, when, when the people in the country say, oh, this, the, the people in the city are going to struggle if the power goes out and they can't fix their own mechanical devices, they'll need us, you know, what's really happening? That's how you figure out what to pay attention to. It's asking what is the actual story, not what they tell me the story is, but what, you know, what am I supposed to, what should I be seeing? I heard this really great book recently, and it's all, it all has to do with how we see reality and don't see reality. And one of the things that this, um, this scholar said was, Evolution doesn't actually favor seeing reality. Evolution favors our ability to, to procreate, but it doesn't actually favor seeing reality. But I think it's the job of the artist to try to see reality. What are some moments or you know, what's an especially powerful moment when your attention or your narrative attention got bumped? I think I started <laughs> to notice a pattern where I was going to all of these churches in the United States, and I'm not a church-going person. And the joke that I tell is that I, I decided to write American Harvest partly because I wasn't going to have to speak Japanese. I could speak English, which is my, you know, the language with which I'm most comfortable. But I ended up going to all these churches and I couldn't understand what anybody was saying. I would leave the church and Eric, who's the lead character, would say, what do you think? And I would say, I have no idea what just happened. And so it took time for me to sort of tune in to what the pastors were saying. And what I came to understand is really simply that there were these Christian churches that emphasized fear and churches that, did, that didn't emphasize fear. And then I started to meet people who believe that God wants them to be afraid and people who are motivated by fear or whose allegiance to the church comes from a place of fear and those who said, you're not supposed to be afraid. That's not the point. That was a huge shift in my ability to understand where I was, who I was talking to, and the kinds of people that I was talking to, and why the history of Christianity mattered in this country. You know, and early on, 
you and I had a conversation and you said in the very, and I just said this the other day to a student, you said to me in the very beginning, be very careful when you talk about evangelicals, because the perception is that the evangelical church is the white church, that it's only the white church. And that, that when you talk about evangelical Christianity, that's the piece you, you pay attention to, but that's not the totality of the history. So I did go into this process with that in the back of my mind. And, and so then the question became, well, okay, well, what is Christianity? Why would it be important to African-Americans? And this question of being motivated by fear or being motivated by love started to be something that I could understand. You can really see people in the world who are motivated by fear, who are afraid, who try to instill fear in others, who motivate others through fear, and those who who don't use fear as, the, as, their, as their motivation or what they're attracted to. It's a very big difference in orientation in the world. And so that was a really big, that was a big moment for me. So you started this book because you said, oh, I only need one language. And then you ended up going to language training. I needed so like many that. different languages. So many yeah. different languages. Yeah. And I mean, even this question of like land ownership that we're talking about, I feel like that's a whole other language. Like there are places in the world and moments in history where people didn't own land. It didn't occur to them that they had to own the land themselves, you know? So what's happening when we think we have to, like with timeshares, I'm, I'm really serious. What need is that fulfilling? You don't need to have a timeshare in Hawaii where you get like one week out of the entire year, right? So what need is that fulfilling? Rest, recreation. I'm wondering the process of living, researching, and writing this book has changed you in any way? And if so, how? I mean, absolutely, it's, but it's so hard to talk about. I think that I have a, a much better and deeper understanding of the history of our country and a, a much greater understanding of the role that race plays in, in our country, a deeper understanding of the tension between rural and urban and also of our interdependence, which is something I sort of knew but didn't completely know. And why, you know, just kicking out a bunch of states or getting rid of a bunch of people isn't, isn't actually an answer to the tension that we face. And it's because there's this great interdependence between people. I mean, so understanding all of that, realizing how intractable the problem is, and, and in some ways, oddly, has made me feel calmer about it. Because I realize it isn't as simple as if I just do X, everything will be fine. I think when you feel like I just need to, if I can just master these steps, if I can just learn this incantation, everything will be fine. Why can't I do it? I think when you live that way, it's very frustrating. And I realize the problems are, are deeper than that. And, and some of the problems the United States faces are, are, are problems that exist all around the world. I mean, the urban-rural problem is a, is a, it's a piece of modernization. It, it doesn't just affect our country. It affects many countries. You know, we've been speaking about land, God, country, you know, Christianity, you know, urbanity, you know, so many you know, ideas that pack a lot unneeded. But in this book, a lot of it is packed in, you know, through this absolutely wonderful man, Eric, and his family. And we're not only watching farming, you know, part of what makes you know, the book compelling and illuminating is we get a chance to understand so much you know, through this, you know, wonderful, generous and, you know, beautiful man, Eric. You know, for those who haven't read it yet, tell us about Eric and why Eric was so crucial to understanding, you know, so much of what you understood, but also to some of the changes that you went through that in the book, we see a lot of changes happening 
in, in part because of that relationship in a, and one in which you know, this man and in members of his family were so incredibly generous and open and honest and wise. Well, I mean, he's a, a Christian from Pennsylvania who's a white man, never been to college, but has a genuine intellectual curiosity, although not immediately apparent in a way that would register to us because, you know, we're, <laughs> we're at an event that's hosted by a bookstore. So when we think of intellectual curiosity, probably the first thing that any of us would do would be to reach for a book, right? And that's not what he would do. He wouldn't reach for a book. He would find someone to talk to. He's a person who is very much about the lived experience, but he was very open to asking questions and trying to understand other people's experiences and how the world works. And he was very concerned. <laughs> he was the person who told me in early 2016 that he thought that Trump would probably win when none of us thought that this was possible. And he said a lot of this is because we don't understand each other at all. And so he's a very open-hearted, very generous person. And you see him change over the course of the book. And you can see, you know, he called me the other day. He said, I've been hearing a lot about Asian violence against Asian Americans. He's met a couple of my friends. He wanted to know, are they all right? And then he said, I just want you to know that we talk about racial justice all the time in church, because of course that's his, the way that he processes life's difficult questions is through church. And I was kind of moved by that. You know, because one of the points that American Harvest makes is that these, these difficult questions don't get talked about in church. And so he said, yeah, I just want you to know this is something that we talk about. So you see him really develop and change as a result of his exposure to me and to seeing how I move through space versus how he moves through space. And it's a big leap of imagination for people to understand that other people have other experiences that are legitimate and real it seems to be one of the most difficult things for people to understand but he really made a great effort to do that and i think it i think it's kind of extraordinary yeah i remember that moment where you're talking and you mention you know you know i'm sure they're christian i never heard him swear um and then you, you know your dad said eric doesn't swear either and he goes eric mennonite and he says something else he told me once i wasn't it wasn't important to me he's eric you know, right. and he jumps in and says good man I said very bright very bright. Yes, of that was my father. My father yeah. said that. Very bright. Esos of cashews. There are all these wonderful moments. Well, so that was actually, you know, that's one of the funny things about my father is my dad was a very cultured person and he loved art and he loved music. He loved travel, but he, he had this kind of, he had a skepticism about too much intellectualism. And it was always very frustrating for me. And I didn't understand what that was all about. It was very important to him that people were intelligent, but that intelligence didn't necessarily translate into a person who read a lot of books. He could read a lot of books and not be a smart person. You know, Eric actually did not read books for years. He met my friend, Suki Kim, and then picked up and read her book. And he wrote to me, he says, this is the first book that I've read in 30 years. But it was an important point for my father that there were many different forms of intelligence and many different kinds of intelligence. And of course, with the kind of schooling and education that I've had, I didn't, I didn't understand what he was talking about. We have just around two minutes left. And so- Thank you all for coming. Yes. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you a, la a final question because in this here in this reflection, one of the wonderful things the book does, it makes a case for understanding and knowledge and engagement and reading. Um, We're always pushing the reading but, and I, I'm always saying we have to have lived experience, but yes, that's exactly. true. And so it makes the case for, you know, reading and understanding our history and seeing 
in understanding geography, but also makes a case for in the rich lived experience. But it also makes a huge argument for the limits. Um, That's right. I if you could say something to us about that, you know, in terms of you know, having been on the other end of American harvest and seen just how incredibly helpful and important and illuminating knowledge is, you know, through books, through lived experience. Also something that the book continually does over and over again to say, leave room for mystery, leave room for not knowing. You know, the most important part of that sustained attention which you advocate for is, you know, the attentiveness to how little we do know and how little we, we can know. And so how do we behave in the midst of not knowing? In, in other words, what's the importance of the limits of knowing? Which is something that the book in, in explores, and I'd love to hear it on the other end of in American Harvest here. Thought. I'm sorry. What What is the question? In a, the beauty of not knowing. Well, I mean, I I don't know, Garnet. I'm just accept that I there's a lot I don't know, and I know from the way that I was brought up with a mother from one place and a father from a completely different place that I can't know the reality unless I'm in that physical place. I mean, there's limits to reading there's there are limits to film there's limits to social media and everything that that can bring to you it can give you the feeling that you have a complete understanding and mastery of the world but until you're actually in a place or doing a job or facing a challenge you cannot know what that's like so i don't know i don't approach the world attempting to master it <laughs> i approach it assuming that i don't know everything and that i can't know everything and I don't approach, I try not to go through the world afraid. I don't succeed all the time. But it, that is a really big lesson that I got from the process of writing this book. And one that, you know, gives me a certain amount of solace. It keeps me somewhat sane day to day. But you're not supposed to wake up in the morning having a grasp of everything. Well, I hope you do grasp that you've written a beautiful book. I'm happy that you're here. I'm especially happy that the wonderful City Lights has, has hosted us. And I hope that other people show their gratitude to City Lights by jumping in and buying American Harvest. And while they're browse around, you know, City Lights is not only selling American Harvest. If you look right in, a, in a, at least in my screen, the top left corner, City Lights, there's a lot of books. Take a while, you know, let your attention wander and you know, get, get a few more books while you're there. And thank you all for spending your yes, Wednesday night with us. Thank you so much. We love you, you, Garnet. Peter. That was very, very Thank nicely you. done. And, you know, a book like this that it really encourages us towards a, a, a different kind of empathy really is something that I think is so important at this time. So congratulations, Marie. And Thank really a big shout out to Grey Wolf. Also to all of you in the audience from all over the world. You know, it's such a joy. Virtuality has been weird, but one of the great pleasures is, of course, just seeing people from everywhere. Tonight's event is made possible in part by the City Lights Foundation. It is carrying on the legacy of our founder, the late Florence Ferlinghetti, into the future. As many of you know, we're a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish poetry, literature, and translation, nonfiction with a progressive political outlook. Hope to see you all soon. Much love to you all. Please be well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.